everyone. This is Mary Beth Hunter with the sixth episode of the Better Conflict Bulletin's podcast, The Transformers, where we speak with people who are working on making the American conflict better. We'll include peace builders who are mediating difficult conversations between red and blue, teachers training their students in conflict skills, journalists who are committed to being trusted by all sides, and technologists asking what platforms can do to help. Today we are speaking with Langston Mayo of Conflict Artistry, where he is a program coordinator. Mr. Mayo holds a master's degree in conflict and dispute resolution from the University of Oregon. He is also a certified general and family mediator in Oregon and the host of the podcast, Isolated Thoughts. Langston Mayo, thanks so much for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work in conflict transformation. Absolutely. So yes, my name is Langston Mayo. I am a, as of a year now, a recent graduate from the University of Oregon School of Law, master's program in conflict and dispute resolution. It really can go as far as back in my time in undergrad where I was a student rights advocate for our student senate. And from there, just really getting this hands-on approach like, oh, I like within a community being like not the dean's office, not these other places, a student can help grievance processes and different things. And that would led me to be attracted to conflict and dispute resolution programs. And so during my time at the UO, I was fortunate enough to get my kind of hands in a lot of different areas. I interned for two years at our ombudsperson's office, and that really intrigued me a lot about, okay, what's it like to be a neutral person that is responsible for meeting with all walks of folks from custodial staff all the way up to, you know, the provost's office and president's office. And how can I show up for them and really empower them to make decisions on their own to change their work environment or their personal relationships? And simultaneously, a good friend of mine, which leads to conflict artistry, the business I'm part of now, a cohort and a cohort member and friend of mine, Sophia Solano, we had always talked about the idea of how could we, she's an artist, she dances, teaches dance and has for her whole life. And I also have a podcast and I love film, these other things, but how can we I guess, merge our love for the arts, with conflict resolution and alternative disputes for resolution. And so at the beginning of this year, conflict artistry was born. Conflict artistry, our unique call to action was how do we, how do we eliminate system harm? Because we know there's still a lot of harm that comes in contact with going through it, being arrested, these different things that end up adding to impacts that aren't even related to the case why you might have gotten yourself into quote unquote trouble in the first place. I think that kind of encapsulates where I am and kind of what I'm doing. You have a really interesting corner of conflict transformation where you're working with the criminal justice system and a lot of other people who are involved in this area tend to work more with people who are having a dispute amongst themselves, whereas you're involved more with, there's been a specific event where there has been an offender and a victim So how do you work with people who say that's not really useful to use that label offender and victim? How do you reorient that kind of discussion? That offender language definitely sticks to kind of the status quo of the system, but we know that everyone is affected by harm. Centering around harm keeps it really communal and the idea that one goes reintegration and accountability. And so if we're again sticking to it being harm rather than this kind of juxtaposed of the victim and offender, I think it kind of helps break down that bit. Do you have any data back on how well this is working in the community? 
Nothing that's publicly available that I can refer to, but regarding to restorative justice practices and alternative dispute resolution practices, you'll see these faces were in conjunction with the Criminal Justice Commission of Oregon. And we're all currently still coming up with our, how do we collect data around this? The state wants to be able to prove at the end of this cycle, are these cases that would have been had contact with the system and did we divert them? But I know that knowing that restorative justice is not a new thing, it's an indigenous practice that's being reintegrated into society. I have a lot of faith in it. That term restorative justice is used a lot in conflict transformation. How are you defining it within conflict artistry? Indigenous peoples, peoples of African culture early on in the West African Ivory Coast particularly have practiced this, have practiced the idea of centering both the community first and foremost, and then looking at who's been harmed, you have the party that's been harmed. And then oftentimes we have the party that has done the harm at the same time. And then you have the facilitators and usually a community rep. And the community rep is to represent you know, everyone else who may not be in the room present, because oftentimes we have our participants invite other people that have been related to if there be their partner or their parents or whoever else may be not directly impacted by the incident, but are still impacted because of their friend, their son, or maybe has been impacted in a negative way. And so restorative justice starts at the keyword restoring, that we're inquiring, we're investigating, and we're looking to then seek accountability on, across the board. To me, the soul of it all, back into like, just because you've made a mistake or you've gone a left direction doesn't mean that you're not still an important part of your community and the community at large. It sounds like your aim for the community is not to be dependent on the police force and the criminal justice system. So what does that look like if you come into a community and they are empowered to make decisions on their own? That's the dream. That's the dream that I think is all conflict resolution practitioners to work yourself out of the job. Different folks are at different places in the journey of like community self-realization, for lack of better terms, that you have everything that you need internally. Because if you're part of something, especially something that's been long lasting, that you have practices, that you have traditions as a practitioner. If I'm coming to a space that isn't mine or I'm not a, a community member of just listening and figuring out, OK, what was it that you all say that you value and how do we keep the track with you all? At the same time, though, we tell them that they still hold their legal rights. You seem to focus also on early stage intervention. Do you think it would be better if you come in contact with people before they even have contact with the system? Absolutely. We're still getting ready to launch. And every one of our referrals have been self-referrals. And so that's the that's the goal. That's the idea is that people find a need like, hey, I don't even know what restorative justice. But I know that I don't want to send my spend my you no know, my roommate to jail because we've gotten to a, a fight. I don't want to I don't necessarily want it to go to level 10, but something has to change. And mm -hmm. so the definitely the dream is to have people know that. Whenever something is going, quote unquote, wrong or undesirable or even something that is maybe harmful, that you can do something about it yourself, because we all know that once the system gets a hold of it, you, too, are then just on the ride. It's another option. Yes. And what does that look like when you deal with early stage intervention when there's criminal activity? Yes, it definitely, definitely ranges given on what the uh, quote unquote criminal activity is. It, it looks like a lot of, again, just doing our proper prior work. So before we even say, hey, let's have a dialogue, getting to know the, the people that are involved and what happened. The baseline for any type of healthy restorative dialogue is voluntary participation. 
Because the moment that we feel as though like, oh, this looks like an opportunity for restorative justice or restorative dialogue, but not everyone involved is ready to participate, that one can invite a large possibility from our harm in the space, but two, we're just not going to come to mutually consensual agreements about how to move forward and you know heal past what's happened. A lot of the people who we talk to here on the podcast are involved with working with people who are quote unquote on the same side. And then when we ask them, okay, but what happens when peace and justice are intention? That really stops people in their tracks and they have trouble working through that. And you're the first person we talk to who really starts with for there to be healing. First, we need some form of restorative justice. Is there something that a lot of other organizations in this area are perhaps missing in the relationship between justice and peace? This comes from my time in my program at the UO and also just being being fortunate enough in this short period of time to be around other practitioners is that I, I think it's easy to find yourself in the advocate space than in a, like, I'm here to be a I won't say it's not about being a neutral party because that even we all know biases and different things. But if your work is advocacy, I think it's important to self-identify that because then it's like, okay, this is what I do. I'm showing up for a particular cause, a particular person, identity, whatever it may be. That's a large part of my passion as a black man. That's what I, that's what I, I love to do and how I show up in the world a lot of ways. And when it comes to not just my like, time of conflict artistry, my conflict coaching, these other things that I do, I value going back to my time as an ombuds person is that I want to be able to know that it doesn't matter what someone looks like, comes from, what even if their interests are very much almost in contradiction of mine, can I show up for them? Because the idea as a facilitator of any type of process, whether restorative, mediation, negotiation, whatever it may be, I'm in service of the group. I'm in service of the participants. And so being able to remove your own your own biases from the moment or that process allows you to hope, hopefully, of course, nothing's guaranteed, but build the bridge between parties that seem to be almost inevitably conflicting. It takes time. Of course, we know there's a lot of historical situations that we can point to that say are still ongoing. But in, as far as like small scale, inter, intermediate communal conflicts and even inner business or inner company conflicts are certainly possible if you're able to show up in that way. How do you deal with working on your own biases? It's, I think something that a lot of people don't think about is, well, you can't say neutral or you can't say non-biased or middle way, because as you mentioned, that in itself has its own biases. So how do you dismantle that approach within yourself? Good question. I think back to one of my instructors in the CREDS program, Alaye Reyes Santos, she, she talked about if you're going to be a practitioner in, in the ADR field in any way, it's to know, like, know your limitations and know what you can give. And not, and that's why I went back to, I think a lot of folks are not just about being comfortable, but are very strong in the advocate role. Because when you're passionate about something that represents you or something that you stand for, you can do that. But when, for me, I, I love the idea that I'm not right. Like, I, I don't believe that I have the best answers. I do believe I have a very unique set of skills and and assets to bring to any one person or organization. But the idea that I have it all. And so someone who may be disagreeing with me or someone that may see something differently than me, I still don't understand why they showed up in that way. And so that also informs me how I show up for other people, for other parties. It's a 
personal projection into my work that I know that I'm always going to be learning something. And I'm also expecting to learn something from the person that I probably least would think like, oh, they're coming at me with this or they're where political views, where the case may be. There's still a reason why this person is showing up that way. And I have to honor that even if it gets close to harmful again, I mitigate that for other people. But for myself, I know I have a bit more capacity to hold that space. Space holding is so important, especially for people in your position. How do you maintain that and maintain self-care when you have all of this conflict raging around you? Oh man, that that is that's a good question that I'm still I'm still navigating. It comes to a level of just commitment for me. And it's not something I advocate for, for anyone else because it is really a, it's a marathon. It's a marathon on life itself, but certainly the the work that we do. And that is why well, I go back to that's like if knowledge of oneself is the greatest asset you can give to be the show for anyone else. And so I, for, for me, it's, I, I find joy in other, and other people like connecting, like me connecting with other people, like fills my bucket a lot because going back to I'm saying, like, I don't, I don't know much of anything, but I know that if I can help break down a barrier, not change someone's mind, but rather just tilt their head and see a different perspective that like tangible or rather intangible, but you can see a manifest change that gives me warmth. Like I don't do it because it's a job again to like, there's an objective because again, especially when it comes to restorative dialogue, it's unforeseen. All you can know is that if everyone's willing to be here, let's go on this journey together. So I, I would say at least for other folks who may be trying to still navigate how to show up for other people in a very emotionally and mentally taxing work is to again know what you can give any one given moment in time and then also kind of that long the journey version of what is it that like why am i doing this work in the first place it sounds like you need to hold that space within yourself so you can be useful to other people and that you're trying to keep this as non-bureaucratic as possible but obviously there are fences around that and you do need some specific steps along the way for example, in a lot of places, this seems to start with what you are referring to on the website as a harm report. Can you explain more about what the harm report is and how that helps in the process? Everything you're doing prior to the dialogue, what is this? Who, who contacted you first? Was it the harm party? Was it the person that was like maybe caused the harm? Or was it a third party? Like, again, a friend of like, hey, there's something going on. Can you please look into this? And then you'll see, is, is it something that is there... Are there things that you can identify one consider be racist or or acts of violence or whatever it may be that could potentially activate you, trigger you? And those those harm reports are again they inform us about how we show up our individual caucuses with folks before we have our you know joint dialogue and their yeah, our point of reference to you know who's in the room and how did we get here. Of course we all re, we always revisit it all while we're in the space, but as the facilitators and behind the scenes stuff, it, it informs us. You're dealing with a lot of areas that are often overlooked in conflict transformation, like substance abuse mm-hmm. and addiction. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work there? Oh, man. Yeah, that that to me, just even you asking about, like, I think some of the what touches me a lot because empathy is like is one like one is one third of my guiding light besides just love in general. And that is understand that people are going going back to like why. I hold space for other people. You never know what someone's showing up with. I have a, a some training in family mediation. And I think that's some of where it shows up the most when you're helping guardians, parents, how to be separate, but center their children. And then you see there may be underlying pieces of, oh, th- there's 
There may be alcoholism. There may be drug use here. There may be other ways that people have been coping in the relationship and now also how they're going to do outside of that. And so that's something I'm really I'm really proud of that we're able to budget into our grant request. And that was a reparations fund. People go through our processes once they come, that they, you know, fill out a full agreement and they come to an agreement. Part of that can be receiving funds for treatment services and different things, because that's what we, that's why when it comes to a participants of our program, it's a free, free service. We may consult for trainings and different things, but as far as participants go, we want to remove that barrier. Also, you know, folks may have contact with the system. They need to pay for court fees and stuff. The reparation fund also covers those type of things. So as far as substance abuse goes, it's, you know, that's, that's another thing to, you know, remove shame around and the larger conversation about why are we, you know, punishing people for navigating a tough time while making it even tougher on them. Often when there are dealings with the criminal justice system, especially in the case when, you have family members and loved ones who have sustained a lot of harm, maybe even lost a loved one. They're coming from a place of tremendous, unimaginable pain. Right. They seemed focused on restorative justice that looks a little bit more like revenge. Right. So how do you walk that line? Oh, man. That's something that's conversations I have with other peers outside the organization often, all the time. Often. And, and that is that, that's something that is still to be you know figured out. I have some friends that, no, I saw the conversation with about, about a couple of weeks ago where I did a lot of my early on time writing about capital punishment and the prison system. And it's really hard to navigate it, but it, you can both honor people's place in pain and also still not giving an advocate to retribution because whether it be my own personal experience or just simply seeing the endless cycle that violence begets violence, that there's a void that won't be filled by maneuvering in a certain way. However, again, going back to voluntary participants, we cannot suggest like, I know you just are, you have just faced and are going to be now get, like grieving and managing something that is unimaginable. How about we don't like consider these? No, no, it's none of that. It's again, showing up in service of the group and that's, you know, honoring this stuff, but still not giving in to lynch mob mentality. And every time harm comes around, we just turn around and cause more harm. And so that's something that I'm still negating how to communicate that with everyone, because I, I, I will never minimize anyone's pain. It can be difficult in a lot of situations where you're not sure how to proceed because a situation is very deep with lots of tangled roots. How do you even start to untangle all of that and come in as someone who was outside the situation, which is often needed. Right. But how do you even start to work through all of that? Listening. Just listen. You, you just listen to folks. You will get most of what you need in the sense of being of service or if you can be of service. If you have the emotional capacity, just be there for people. And it may look like an entirely different process than you thought of like, let me go and go help people. Because going back to the idea that we still our communities, we have our own tools. And so if we're given space to maybe grieve or have folks like lean, then they may be reminded that they can handle it to themselves and process themselves. And that may be it. If it is a bit more hands-on, you just, you have to show up. I, I'm really big, especially when it comes to, you know, in Oregon, there's a very large indigenous population that is still navigating both, you know, trying to land back and different things. Large amount of colleagues in the field, at least in Oregon, are you know, why identifying that there's a lot of like, hey, having to self-regulate at the door about I may intention well, but am I trying to be a savior here in these other pieces? You have to come in and learn what like really what it is, not just, OK, I heard something. I've navigated this before. And so now I can do the same thing. You're hearing the 
the interest, but not the, the needs or let alone the values of the people there. I think that's something that's overlooked a lot in legislation and yes. working with the criminal justice system is that one size did not necessarily fit all. Yes. I'm glad you even brought that back up because that's where my mind goes that I'm as much as I have a large value for uh, navigating like the folks who have caused harm and can holding space and empathy for them to be re- reintegrated and restored is also in contrast to the traditional system that we operate in now is not victim centered. We don't actually care about the people who have been harmed. We care about punishment. At least that's what we value as a society is that someone's been harmed. How do we then turn around and then make sure that other person that's done wrong? All statistics show that capital punishment doesn't work, has never worked. How are we, you know, still just dropping those seeds of reminders that it'll be in the cycle if that's the way that we go about. Your work with family issues and, for example, a divorce situation where you need family intervention, that's something that sounds like, shockingly, conflict transformation hasn't really gotten involved with. It's more mediation and, okay, you get this much time, you get that much time, and then no one's happy. So how can your organization come in and improve the traditional approach to family conflict? I would say it's always, you know, case and context, you know, specific about what is happening. If it is a matter of parents that are separating and have children, then I still believe that there's restorative ways that mediation, not traditional mediation, but through restorative lens can still serve them. What do these people need? What does this family need? And I've talked a lot about being neutral and unbiased, but this is where you interject the desire for, like, I want what's best for y'all. So if that means completely y'all are like 50-50 or like whatever the percentage split is and don't really want to interact, so be it. And if there's a space for it, right, outside mediation session, you really don't do a lot too much of like restorative dialogue because you are there to kind of make decisions and agreements. But if there is a space and it's invited and warranted by the folks involved, then you may tackle some of those those long-lasting harms that may not, you know, bring them back together or whatever the case may be, but can set up a new path for this co-parenting plan that they're seeking to walk. What do you think the biggest misconception people have in this process? I will say surprisingly, when it comes to restorative justice, it's again, such a long standing thing, but still niche in the kind of new world that we're navigating now that folks tend to know, they may not know what the process is going to be like, but they know it's not going to be punitive. And they know that like, there's a chance, like that tends to be, some of the rhetoric that's used like, hey, I know that you don't necessarily call the police on us, like in these different things. I'll say mediation work. We have to really set what the ground rules are in all processes. There's people that have come in and tried to leverage their like knowledge of the legal system and different things against their like the other party or other partners. And you have to really, you know, make sure to kind of break down the power imbalance that may exist. But even then, if as I, I'm sure that we'll encounter folks who have not only no idea what the process is like, but also may be a bit weary that restorative practices often really break down that barrier immediately once you just start f- focusing on people's feelings. You're no longer just fact-finding and telling them, okay, what happened? At what time? So when, after the fight, like, what, like how did you feel? And how did you feel when no one called you and checked up on you? In addition to working with specific issues and communities, you also work with skill-building trainings. What does that look like if someone brings you in to help with that? As Conflict artistry is we're navigating now, really just doing a lot of one-on-ones, doing a lot of 
what is restorative justice and linking people back to the practices that existed before and what we're doing today to honor those. And so that's really what a lot of it is, is people just want to know, hey, what is this? I've heard, you know, buzzwords around, but what does it really look like? And we kind of did that this past Sunday at a, a community center in Eugene, Oregon called Alluvium. There's a lot of seven days a week community events and people came in and they just asked us questions. Kind of, it was a circle conversation that almost turned into a Q&A. And so that's really what that that looks like. How do you work with people who are resistant to that? I mean, I think that's some of my favorite people. I, I, I love the not right away buy-in because that means that you're critically thinking. I think for some, it's like, oh, like, you know, hesitant. When you just talk with people, again, going back to listening and centering people. And my thesis for my master's program was how selfless communication can reduce harm in relationships. And I only plug that because something like, I don't really care about writing and research, but I really do care about, I do write about something that I, I really do like care about these things. If you can show up and have the capacity to center people, changes everything. Because when even even if you unintentionally feel like you have an agenda, you're trying to push someone in a certain direction, again, you could be as well-intended as possible. And it's no longer about the person sitting in front of you or the people sitting in front of you. Then I, I think it, that's where all the love and magic is lost. You have such a healthy and welcoming approach to this. I love that you said the people who are resistant are some of my favorite people because that shows that you're open to talking to them and learning about them instead of just saying you are the enemy and I need to end you. Oh my goodness. How do, how do we invite more people to take that approach? We all have different roles in this revolution, wherever that may be, however you may, you know, picture that word and phrase. If we're othering people, again, some of my favorite stuff is doing reading into psychology of conflict and dehumanization and these pieces that I will, at least as Langston, I will not do my part in like furthering polarization and fracturing of us. And again, I know that that's a tall task to ask of many people because I mean, that's why we've gotten to the space when we think about cancel culture and other things like they're all understandable symptoms of a culture that has gone unaddressed. And we have to know that the symptom cannot be the end all of like, you know, how we heal. Like we can't just like, oh, the cut is bleeding. The cut is bleeding because there was harm happened. Now, how do we get some peroxide? How do we get like, how do we get the things that we're going to end up having a, a scar to show that we've been through some stuff, but it's at least healed. I know that people don't just wake up and choose violence. You, you get there. How do you work with people who state that this opinion is toxic? I don't like the history of these people and the way they've been acting. And we just would like to banish you from the platform because your opinions, your history does not have a place with this more just and peace-focused society that we're trying to work on. What do you say to that? Certainly, we have no shortage of examples happening in real time. Private-owned companies, they're going to you know, have their own right to do as such. And though when we show up in real public spaces that are shared, we cannot mimic those same type of like, I have the right to terminate your usage on the platform that you sign terms and agreements. It doesn't mean that we give praise, we amplify platforms, but that doesn't mean that you also dismount because when you push people far, that's where we get the polarization that we are. Like people, there's folks that are like our trolls, you know, that's for attention. But then there's folks that may actually be experiencing hurt and harm even if it seems like, oh, you have privilege, you have these different things that are really true. But if someone feels alienated, my basic understanding again of human psychology and conflict is that you're going to double down. When I think about one great example is folks who are identifying like the anti-vaccine kind of realm that I'll never forget in doing research on group conflict that by and far and large, folks who identify within the same, so like mothers who identified as anti-vaccine 
they were only convinced by people who also identified as anti-vaccine. So the idea that if you push people so far into a different direction, all they ever will be is an echo chamber and there will only be the right, wrong binary polarization that exists. If we do this as a team, we can go somewhere. But as soon as we start putting a stiff arm out and saying, you're over there, we're over here. Well, we are only we're only living just in the, the precipice of what that looks like. How do you work with people who are reticent towards this type of process because they don't understand that, for example, everyone has the same goal? We want to end homelessness in Portland. We have different ideas of how to get there. How do you work within that? We may all want the same goal, but are we starting from the same place? I don't believe that you can't remedy a harm if you don't know the root of it. If we're just building more houses, I mean, for sure, like, in my little bit understanding of the market is that there is a housing shortage. It's a little bit of houses, but if we're not addressing poverty and historical marginalization and racism and these other pieces of like, hey, if we're not going to revamp our culture, then we're only getting nice robotus and to keep pushing us down the road. How do you invite people to step outside what they may have embraced as their whole identity? Mm. I am blue, I am red. How do you work with people to help them to understand that people are a lot of different things? That's a great question because it's it's kind of going back to that cancer culture piece that when it's a necessary symptom when folks feel if I'm not heard for a long time. And so when you're able to find something that speaks to you, you almost hold on to it for dear life because you've been alienated and exiled in every other way. As far as political theologies go, I love having those conversations because you start deconstructing, well, what do you actually value? What policy is important to you? And then that takes, again, it's not an overnight sensation by no means, but then over time you start seeing that, oh, Maybe like that's not all what that quote unquote part, at least to this day, represents. And I think if you really cared about those policy pieces that you just talked to me about, that voting in that interest or showing up and speaking about those things rather than for like rare terms like the clan or gang mentality that really has become at the major level of politics as far as our the two party system is concerned, that you, you'll end up hurting yourself. You want to make people feel good again, like the idea that they're winning at something. And so if you really want to like feel like you're on the right side of history or right, blah, 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 or you're conserving tradition, well, look at and see, are, are these parties or all these things that you've attached yourself to really serving what you say is important to you? I think since we're seeing this fracturing of media right. and sometimes unwittingly and unconsciously, people tend to self-isolate into a bubble and they don't have any information that complicates their narrative. So what do you invite people to do to help them understand that there's a more complex reality out there? I still invite everyone else for them say for themselves that you see a polarizing, you know, headline somewhere, or if you, you know, you stick to a usual news outlet, the biased media chart, I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. That's one of the greatest tools I ever discovered in undergrad is like, okay, look at this chart of all, I mean, talking about even the small in the corner underneath the rock media organizations that sometimes catch wind or have their own small fan base of people that, you know, subscribe and listen. Just look at it. If you feel, if you still feel compelled to only listen, watch, read, insert media channel here or new publication here, hey, I cannot, and I do not want to like pull you away from that because that's inorganic and inauthentic and it won't last. You have to be able to show me a real like point of reference from whatever is being written. And so I, I just meet people where they're at. And like, if I know that they're, you know, 
maybe have an academic background, I can be more scholastically rigorous with them. But if they're, you know, common folk, like I just ask them, hey, what have you seen that elsewhere? How did your academic background and your coursework prepare you for what you're doing now? Oh, immensely. In some ways, I always did, you know, for a long time. I guess probably the grad school is like, like education, especially university settings, all about things you do outside the classroom. But once I got into the conflict and dispute master's program, I want to be able to consume information critically. I have a I have a podcast called Isolated Thoughts that I've been doing for about three years now. And I talk about a lot of like film, music and stuff, but it's all about critically consuming information. And while it may sound on the nose and wherever it may be, but it's, it is also in response to that. We all have this kind of free will, essentially. However, it's being pushed unbeknownst to us the way that we engage with our devices, these different accounts and different pieces. And that's where a lot of my, my studies gave me, armed me with the tools of knowing how to look at charts and graphs and means and derivatives and knowing I may not be able to necessarily easily give this in layman's term to the next person, but I can give like the cliff notes version, like, hey, this chart looks like a meme that was made somewhere and doesn't have any root to you know, something that has been researched and looked at. And so while this may affirm a belief that you may have had, I just challenge you to say, I can give you five examples from the same source that may not be real. How do you feel about that? And then from there, we move on. Talk a little bit more about the artistry half of this. Mm-hmm. How is art and culture influencing what you do and how can that be employed to encourage a more complex view? At the root of conflict artistry is about creative solutions. It isn't just, okay, you're going to do community service and then you're going to pay back the broken damage that you did to the window. No, I, how does it look like to, if the kid that broke the window at the at the store, actually they're, you know, they, they do paint. So how about we help them from our reparations pay the window, but the store owner has been wanting to do something about the empty facade of the wall on the left side. Now, instead of graffiti, they can now, you know, paint something and really inviting that. You know, we all learn different ways, but I I believe we're all artists, even if it isn't like the tangible creating space. It's about being able to appreciate it. And sometimes art can, since it's so emotional, that can also be a flashpoint. And sometimes our philosophies can clash there. For example, here's the statue. It's been there for 150 years. When you have different philosophies and they're both approaching it as a zero sum game, where do you start? Absolutely. And, and that's where they turn off maybe the traditional restorative brain. I just go back to my like mediation training of again, oh, there's the interest happening here. I say, I want this thing. And then you start digging more and like, okay, but what you're, saying there's a need there. And then if you're fortunate enough to really stick with it, the value of, I just want to feel like the little bit of identity I have is not being erased. And that also means if like Confederate pieces and stuff like, oh, okay, I guess you, we have subscribed to the Southern pride piece and that this coming down is attack on you, whatever it may be in that getting through sharing of information and history and pieces and saying like the other, like many other things that you do that are Southern traditions and practices, than this maybe objectively a statue of person that doesn't represent all people. If you want to be patient and do the work, like why am I reacting in the first place that way? We all stub our toe. Yes, we're all going to have a first reaction, but we're all going to end up having very different like post reactions to that, that we can be in control of. And just for the people to look at that, like, why, why are you reacting and what is it and how do we you know, honor that? You're working with people who are from 
completely different philosophical areas. If, for instance, you're saying there's a systemic problem here and we need to work on reforming or dismantling the system. And the other side says, well, I think that's a Marxist way of going about it. And I really don't think that's the issue. And I completely disagree with even the premise of the question. How on earth do you go forward from there? I, I, I love those. I love those type of remarks too. When we when we demonize folks, like it's easy to get into dehumanization, but also othering. That when you say that this is a Marxist thing, why is that the lead front rather than hey, this contradicts a republic, a democrat, like whatever the case may be. Like if that is where you're coming from, and then we start tackling from there. But if the lead man, for lack of better terms, is scapegoat for why something is wrong, socialism, all the different buzzwords. Let's get again. Let's get back at what, like, why is it? Why does it bother you? Why does it not sit right with you for change? Because again, we all know change can be scared for everyone. So that is understandable. But if this isn't serving everyone, if this isn't for everyone, why are you not interested in everyone having something? And of course, we know this. And have all the folks that would very much say no. But again, of course. Even I would say outside the extremes because the extremes still exist, so we don't want to exclude them from conversation, but that just takes a whole different set of experience and commitment to a process that you can get people to just loosen their grip a little bit to that. As you kind of alluded to, I've now attached myself to an identity, a cause, or whatever the case is, and not allowing themselves to be fluid because that, that tends to be scary. What are you working on right now that you're excited about that you can share with us? We're very close to launch conflict artistry. We're looking at the top of 2023 and we're going to be accepting, accepting more clients, really just trying to hopefully be a beacon for what's possible across the country. And of course, at the you know, large community that here in Oregon, we can really do something that we really commit to alternative practices. Exciting stuff. Thank you so, so much for your time, Lex. We really appreciate it. And we would love to check in with you later on to see how you and your goals are faring. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Langston, we appreciate your insights. Come find the Better Conflict Bulletin at betterconflictbulletin.substack.com to subscribe to our free and weekly newsletter, including an edited transcript of today's conversation. If you have any feedback or suggestions for our work, Find us on Twitter at better underscore conflict. We appreciate the moments you spent with us. See you next time. And remember that if everyone's willing to be here, we can go on the journey together. Mm-hmm.